You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same as one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and a striving after wind." The fools fold his hands and eat his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Holy, holy, holy are you, O triune God. So we come to you this evening in humility. Some of us in, with questions and in weakness, that though the darkness hide thee, that though the eye of sinful man, are your glory we may not see, Father, we pray that you would show us your glory tonight through your word and through your son Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I hope that Ecclesiastes has been as good for your soul as it has been for mine over these past few weeks. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you yet, I'd love to shake your hand and get to know you a little bit after this service. We've been going through this book of Ecclesiastes. If you have a Bible, it's, if you just find the middle of the Bible in the book of Psalms and flip two more to your right, you'll find it. It's not that we need this book of the Bible any more than any other book. Our God does not waste words and every single word that we have in his word to us is profitable for our lives. It's necessary for our life and godliness. But Herman Melville's quote, of what this book is has just been tumbling around in my head for the past month, that this is the truest of all books. Its realness, its rawness, its honesty are just what we need. And I'm looking forward to getting back into our gospel community on Tuesday night to begin talking a bit more deeply about what all this means for our lives. We've seen the preacher in the first two and a half chapters reflecting on the vanity of all things. And we, like we said a month ago or four weeks ago, uh, vanity in this book doesn't necessarily mean the way that we do, like somebody being vain and conceited. This word vanity, hevel, uh, is more like vapor. Like just in a couple of weeks, on the first crisp, cool morning, when you walk out and you see the, your 
the vapor come out of your mouth and then disappear. This is all of life, our lives and everything in it, all hevel, just sandcastles, even impressive ones that just get entirely washed away, here, gone, and forgotten. And we saw the preacher try to make sense of all this, understanding and trying to grab hold of some of the good things in our lives in chapter 2, like entertainment and nature and music, art, sexuality. And we saw that all of these, while these are good gifts, they are indeed meant to point us toward the giver. In and of themselves, they themselves are just vapor. It's like watery sand trying to grasp hold of that will just slip through our fingers. And then last week, we saw the preacher begin to, to peel back the lid of, the, of reality, to peer more deeply down into the depths of the universe, understanding that there's a time and a season for all things because that is the way that God has ordained it. God, who is in heaven and over the sun, has caused it to be that way. There's a spring, there's a summer, and there's a fall and a winter. Yes, because of the earth's rotation and the tilt of the earth and how it goes around the sun, but also because God tilted the earth that way and he causes the earth to go around the sun. Humans live for about 70 or 80 years, and not just because of biological entropy, but because God causes us to live that long, grow old, and then to die. Some, perhaps even many of us, in unexpectedly short lives. And under the surface of that theology, down deeper can come some difficult questions. Nations go out to war in thousands, sometimes over the history of, the, of wars of this world, millions die, not only because treaties are broken, but because God has ordained and orchestrated the happenings and trajectory of world history. So perhaps after last week, you this week, like the preacher, begin to think, but if God is sovereign, how can he allow so much evil and suffering in the world? Why do the bad guys seem to win so often and the good guys seem to lose? In our text this evening, the preacher is now going to move his reflection from the hevel nature, the vapor nature of good things in the world, to the hevel nature of all things in the world, which includes death and loss and weakness and injustice and even human selfishness. So we'll think through our text tonight under four headings, the vanity of injustice, the vanity of death, the vanity of selfishness, and the vanity of legacy. The vanity of injustice. So the preacher finishes reflecting on God's sovereignty in all things, but then he looks around, and in all places, there is seemingly nothing but injustice. He looks around and agrees, perhaps with one of my favorite fiction authors, that the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike, but mostly on the just, because the unjust have stolen their umbrellas. Like, you know who Lady Justice is? Lady Justice, she goes back to Roman days and she usually stands on top of courthouses or courtrooms. And what does she look like? There are three characteristics of Lady Justice. She's blindfolded, she holds a scale in one hand and then a sword in the other. And she's meant to represent that justice is blind, that she doesn't care what someone looks like. She will weigh the evidence in the scales of justice, and if someone is indeed guilty, uh, they'll be held responsible. And if they're innocent, then they'll be let go. If there's one place that you would expect to find justice, 
we might expect to find it in the courtroom. Well, the preacher looks around and says in verse 16, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. As one commentator says, perhaps about Lady Justice, here in Ecclesiastes, the blindfold is off, the scales are unbalanced, and the sword is stolen. The preacher is not just saying that judges and courtrooms are unjust. He's saying that there is no justice anywhere. If there's no justice in a courtroom where we might expect to find it, then outside of the courtroom, it's even worse. Now, we can be thankful for the country that we do have, that we live in. We can be thankful for the checks and balances and the large amounts of accountability that we have in our legal system. But even in our country, often the guilty go free or at least unfound out. The wealthy are able to afford top lawyers who putting their powers together and perhaps even their money and influence can make sure that there's no conviction. Whereas someone with fewer resources or perhaps even a different skin color will be overwhelmingly more likely to face conviction. People are wrongly imprisoned. People are wrongly even sometimes executed. There have been 163 exonerations from death row since 1973. And in the same time, while the government doesn't allow for posthumous exonerations, after someone has been executed, the government comes in and says this person was actually innocent, there have been 39 executions in our country after which new evidence was found after their execution, which would suggest that they were innocent or at least suggest serious doubt over their guilt. The innocent are often punished and the guilty often go free. And that's not to mention even life outside of the courtroom. The preacher goes on in his observations in chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I saw all of the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. There is violence and oppression everywhere we look. Nice people, often children, are murdered sometimes in their homes or in mass shootings. We can turn on the news or read stories of massive amounts of death due to war or genocide, terrorism, sickness, poverty. Like, I want to encourage you, but not really, to just like Google the news in Myanmar that's going on right now, the unspeakable atrocities and genocide that's happening like right now as we speak. Throughout history, in every continent, in every age, institutions, Governments and institutions and governments made up of individuals can oppress and take from their own people. In the past several years, white America has been confronted with the reality that African Americans and people of color have perhaps known for centuries that despite the good character of the overwhelming majority of police officers in America, many can still, in the blink of an eye, perhaps even subconsciously, decide to become judge, jury, and executioner over a crime that does not merit the, uh, the death penalty, oftentimes merely just running away or driving away in fear. And in the past year or so, there has been a great unveiling of sexual predation and power. Nowhere has been immune. Like we thought it was a, a Hollywood or a Wall Street problem. And perhaps we thought it was a Roman Catholic problem. 
And even though perhaps not nearly as pervasive and systemic in some of these other institutions, the curtain has then been pulled back to show that the same wickedness is still rotting within evangelicalism and perhaps even in some parts of our own denomination. And because of all this, the preacher goes on to say in 4 verse 2, And I thought the dead who all are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. He's saying the same thing that Freddie Mercury once said. Sometimes I wish I had never been born at all. Like, which is an even, even sadder reality. Have you ever thought through this lyric of Bohemian Rhapsody? Like, it gets me every time. That's a sad reality. It's, that's worse. Sometimes I wish I had never been born at all is much more sad than, like, I wish to no longer go on living. I wish to have never existed and to have seen the things that I have seen. So what do we say? What, what about injustice? Well, let's just let the preacher answer. In verse 17 of chapter 3, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Just as he trusted in God's sovereignty and timing for all the good things earlier in the chapter, he continues to trust in his good sovereignty and the bad things as well, with injustice here too. Remember last week we said that God always does everything at just the right time. And he will not always remain silent. The prophets, Jesus, the apostles, they all look toward the great day of the Lord where Jesus will return and bring justice to all of his enemies. And thinking and talking about God's justice can perhaps make us uncomfortable. Clint admitted before we read the profession of faith that we read together that it can be a tough pill to swallow to say out loud the things that we said. But that profession of faith actually should come as a comfort to our souls. I think there's an even a phrase in there that said uh, that it brings comfort in our adversity. Why does God's judgment bring comfort in our adversity? Why should it be a comfort to us? Well, because it shows us that God will not shrug at sin forever. He does not now and he will not forever. From large systemic injustice to the individual wickedness of each of our hearts, God takes sin, wickedness, injustice quite seriously. He loves this world and hates what we do to it. Now we need to be careful in our cries for justice first in that we demand justice against others while just assuming that God will just look the other way with the wickedness in our own hearts but also in that there's a right way to lament injustice that we see in the world. Like there's a right way to cry out and ask God in humility, how long, O oh Lord? How long? Too often we can use this kind of questioning, which then leads us into a place of accusing God. The problem of evil, this is what we're talking about here, this has been a problem for humans for millennia in thinking through how do you reconcile an all-good, all-powerful God with the existence of the degree of suffering in the world? That's a difficult question. So many can use that problem, get through that thinking, and then arrive at the other side that there is no God. Or if there is a God, then he's actually not all-powerful or that he's actually not good. Perhaps arriving at the conclusion that we've said many times of the 
typical new atheist of today, that there is no God and I hate him. To them, I might say, well, I understand. This is really, really difficult. Of all of the doubts and objections against God, like this is the most visceral. This is the most personally emotional for we humans. I'm not sure either why babies die. I can barely fathom the horror that some of you paramedics, some of you EMTs or ICU doctors see every day. Like, I, I don't understand it. It's too much to barely bear. Now, this likely needs far more time than we're able to spend on tonight, and I'd be happy to, this week, pass along some great book or blog recommendations for you to wrestle through these difficult issues. But the only reason that we understand, that we intuitively know that there is something not right in this world, that something is bent or broken from the way that it should be is because we recognize as humans that there is a way that things ought to be. If this world is broken, we recognize the norm from which it's broken from. And this reality was the very thing that caused C.S. Lewis to become a Christian. His angry accusations against God for allowing wickedness, for allowing moral evil revealed to him that he actually believed in such a thing as moral evil which cannot exist in merely a materialist Darwinian worldview where the strong always eat the weak. He realized, I do believe in something of right and wrong. And if I believe in that, then the reality of evil and suffering in the world became to him not an argument against the existence of God, but for it. This is a difficult thing to think through. But the reality is, is that we are under the loom. We are on the backside of the tapestry where everything looks disjointed and where nothing seems to make sense. Why do babies die and tsunamis swell? I don't know. Sister Danny, I don't know why your family has experienced what you have experienced this last week. I don't have an answer. But I do know that God is good. I know that he's always just. And he's always wise. And the fact that perhaps many times in our life, none of us can come up with a good reason why God would allow this amount of suffering to happen does not mean that there isn't one. Tim Keller says that us questioning how God runs the world is like a seven-year-old questioning the mathematical calculations of a world-class physicist. Like, my kids are beginning to understand division. That's great. But for them to confront, like, Stephen Hawking or something, say, you have no idea what you're doing. This is the kind of thing that we do when we shake our fists at the heavens and say, you have no idea what you're doing, or you're not doing it good enough. There's a time and place for everything. And though it seems as though he is silent, he will not always be. God does everything at just the right time. 
And we can trust his faithfulness to us as his people individually, his faithfulness to us with the promises that we sang just a moment ago, and that though all hell should endeavor to shake, all hell with all of its power and fury should endeavor to shake you in your faith in God. He says, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. And we know this because of the faithfulness of Jesus. More on that as we go, but what about the preachers and what about Freddie Mercury's reflection? Like life and death, man, like is there any point of it at all? Shouldn't it be better for us to have just never existed? Well, he goes on now in a second reflection on the vanity of death. He says in verse 18, chapter 3, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down to the earth? Now, is the preacher really saying that humans are no different than like cows or dogs? That there is no advantage to being a cow or a dog or a human because all of them end up in the same place. Whether that's like all dogs go to heaven like us or we're all just going to go to hell in the same place. I don't, this is not what he's saying. Humans and dogs don't all go to hell or to heaven is what he's not saying in verse 20 when he says all go to one place. The same place that he's talking about is not hell or heaven, but it is death. Like what happened to the bodies of your great-grandparents? You don't, you don't, none of you even remember their names. Uh, but what happened to their bodies? Well, their bodies, the remains of their bodies turned to dust. And what happened to the bodies of your great-grandparents' hamsters or their dogs, their pets? They all turned to dust in the same way. Last week, or two weeks ago, we said that you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the remains of Julius Caesar and a homeless man. Well, today, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between Julius Caesar and, like, a gerbil. It's all just dust. We humans can do a lot of things. We can write books and compose music. We can design and build incredible bridges and buildings and just incredible science. We can discuss philosophy. We can make pizza, for heaven's sake. We can go to the moon, which making pizza and going to the moon is about on the level playing field. But while we're a little better at fighting off death for just a little bit longer than like possums or ants, being a human is actually not beneficial towards ultimately staving off our ultimate reality, our ultimate inevitable reality that we share with every possum and ant on the earth today. While the preacher certainly has life after death in mind elsewhere, he just talked about God's future judgment in 3.17 as well again in chapter 12 as a warning. Here in this passage, death is the great equalizer. It comes for all things in creation, humans included. And the preacher says in verse 18 that one reason that God allows death is to remind us of this fact, to remind us of our own mortality and to trust in his eternity. To remind us that he is God and that we are not. That he is over the sun and we are under the sun. That he is the creator and we belong to the creation. We live daily in bodies that get sick, that are weak, 
And not only that, that experience this kind of physical weakness, but we actively participate in rebellion against the creator. In fact, this is why we die in the first place. That because we forgot the reality that we are created beings, we humans, we tried to become like the transcendent God who made us. Moving from finite created category into the transcendent to divine category on our own. So the fact that we can get sick and die comes as a very good reminder for us. Roadkill, when we see it on the side of the road, should not only remind us of our own sure incoming death, but should also slap us in the face a little bit. Should slap us in the face for the here and now. While the preacher's encouragement to us is absolutely true, as we've been thinking through the past two weeks, when he's encouraging us to find contentment in our daily reality, because that is what God has given us, he says in verse 22, so I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. All of that's true. Our coming death should come and should remind us to find contentment in what the Lord has given us for today, but it should also come, our coming death, as a reminder that we do live on this side of the resurrection. Like, when we're confronted with this reality, we should be thinking, like, is this all I have to live for? Is what I see and can touch and can think and can love, is this all I have? And then I'm just here and gone and forgotten. Is my sure and coming death a good thing? Or is it a place of dread? Do I have a bucket list? I'm not saying it's a bad thing if you have a bucket list, but perhaps think about why you've created a bucket list in the first place. Subconsciously, you've created the bucket list because you think that the end of your life is the end. It's the end of the adventure. And that perhaps you'll just float away and stare at a bright light and sing holy, holy, holy for a few trillion years. That's not reality. It's the beginning the doorway to life everlasting. We humans, we could never bridge our way over the chasm to transcendence on our own, out of death and vapor and into eternity, but the God-man can. Eternity and transcendence bridged the chasm to us when the eternal took on finite, when the transcendent took on flesh of weakness so that we who are created might share in the very life of God taking the wickedness and the injustice of my own heart and receiving the good and right justice of God in my place. But the life and death and resurrection of Jesus isn't just about offering forgiveness to sinners, isn't just about expanding the family of God. Though, praise the Lord, that's an amazing reality, that the gospel saves us. The life and death and resurrection is much more, though. It's about the kingdom of Christ, about ultimately reconciling all things in heaven and on earth of final and full overlap so that God and man can one day again live fully together where all forms of evil and death and oppression and injustice are finally and fully done away with forever. who died eternal life to bring and lives that death may die. That's what we're saying about Christ our King. He lives now that death 
and injustice and oppression might be done away with forever. Under the loom, on the backside of the tapestry, it seems and feels like the evil and death of this world is ongoing and never-ending. The suffering is just too much. How long, O oh Lord? And I don't have a timeline to answer that question for you. But I do know that evil and injustice and sin are finite. And in that sense, even suffering and death are just as heavy as laughter and entertainment. This world and everything in it is vanity of vanities, but the God of this world in, and his wisdom and his goodness, he is eternal. So does the dead possum cause you to reflect with what Paul is reflecting on in hope in Philippians that for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. My death is actual, actually eternal gain. To the preacher and to Paul, death is an enemy, but God uses it as the door. And yet, even after turning back to joy, to, to joy and to contentment, Ecclesiastes is this big ball of tangled up Christmas lights, right? And he, he looks back after thinking about joy and contentment. Then at the beginning of chapter 4, the reflections that we've already considered at the beginning of that chapter, he then goes back to think on and reflect on more injustice. There's pain and injustice, but then there's joy and contentment, and then there's more death and oppression and more tears, Despite his commitment to find joy in the here and now as good gifts from God, it's still hard. It's hard when there's so much injustice and death. And thirdly, it's hard when he observes just so much selfishness in the world as well. The vanity of injustice, the vanity of death, and the vanity of selfishness. Verse 4, he says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. In verses 4 and 5, he compares two types of people. Two types of selfishness. Verse 4, we have the man who looks at everything that his neighbor has and he wants and he wants and he wants. This is like the Wall Street American dream guy which if we're honest with our, ourselves exists in all of our hearts to some degree. Like nearly all of American culture is just one big race to the top. Like the reason we want to go to school in the first place is so that we can get a good job. And the reason that we want a good job is so that we can make lots of money. And the reason that we want to make lots of money is to have all the toys or better toys than our neighbor have. And, the, and another reason we want to make a lot of money is so that we can get out of this race at a reasonable age, maybe retire around 55 and enjoy all of the things that we have accumulated throughout these years. Bigger and better, bigger and better, bigger and better. And if the ladder to get to the top is made up of not wooden ladder rungs, but other humans that we have to step on and climb up over, then so be it. That's just the way it is. And this is the man that he describes in verse 4. Verse 5, on the other hand, compares a different kind of selfishness. The fool who folds his hands. He won't work. Like, America's the worst, man. Like, it's just so consumeristic, and it's just like one big rat race. I don't need all that. I'm so much better than that. I'm just cool with being human and being cool. I'm just going to check out a school and work, and man, just, just hang out. 
So this guy, he, he stops working altogether. But then, when he stops working altogether, he doesn't have any food for himself. And so he begins to gnaw on his own hands. This is suicide by sloth. And he begins to eat himself because he's so hungry. Ecclesiastes is so great. <laughs> Optimistic stuff. Now, times have changed a bit with social programs and other ways of providing for those who will not work. But in these days, if you did not work, you did not eat. And if you did not eat, you die. And what good is there in living a life of laziness and unnecessarily shortened by your own self-induced hunger? What good is there? It's just, just a vapor. There's nothing that is good in that kind of life. This kind of selfishness can't be the way forward because this kind of person has nothing to give towards others. He not only has enough for himself, but he has nothing to give away. The preacher says the answer is somewhere right in the middle. Verse 6, he says, Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. Better to have just what you need to live a quiet life than to have not enough or to have more than you need. This is what Solomon has in mind in Proverbs 30, where Solomon writes, give me, he's praying to God, he says, give me neither poverty or riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? So give me enough so that I don't deny you in hunger. Or give, give me enough, or not, not too much, so that I think that I have made it all on my own. But then, don't give me so, so little, lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my Lord. Give me just what I need in contentment. The text that Glorianne read earlier for us was already getting pretty long, so I had her stop at verse 6. But we're going to keep going here through the rest of the chapter. Verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Like, we don't have to be Wall Street executives to look back on our lives and wish that we had spent more time with our children, or to wish that we had spent more time at the park with people in our gospel communities. If more promotions, if more recognition, if more money are themselves the goal, if despite your upward climb you have neglected your family, you have neglected your church, you, you have neglected the suffering around you, you've even neglected your own personal joy and contentment, pleasure in this life, then this is an unhappy business. This is a really sad and depressing sandcastle that just gets washed away for no one to remember. But when the life is turned from the inside, from selfishness, and now toward the outside, now something great happens. Verse 9, two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Work and life are not all vanity, not all just chasing the wind when you do it with others. This isn't necessarily a wedding passage here, though it's not entirely unusual or inappropriate to have this read at a wedding. He's just saying that community and friendship are essential to human survival and flourishing. 
And the chord thing here is interesting. Perhaps a, a clearer but weirder illustration, um, like Samantha Scarborough, if I got you to come up here, uh, she, I'm not asking you to come up here, but if I did, hypothetically, I could like, have her sit down and I could pull on like, one of her hairs, just one. And what would happen? Well, the hair would either break or I would yoink it out of her head, right? But if I had her sit on the stool and I had her tie up a, a big braided ponytail, it would hurt her, but I could lift her up off of the stool by her ponytail, right? Like, this is really crazy. Human hairs, they're frail, they're fragile, they're easily broken, but when there's a few thousand of them tied up together, they become immensely strong. Such is life in isolation and selfishness versus life in deep, entangled community. Isolation breeds more self-focused thought. Isolation is the context for unchallenged sin. Isolation ultimately brings loneliness, hopelessness, and meaninglessness. Life in community that is braided up and mixed up with one another breeds thinking more about others, gives greater context for rebuke, for encouragement, for growth. Community isn't the thing that brings life, only Christ can, but it does give meaning. Living with and living alongside of others, knowing others and being known by others is, uh, is just a reward for toil. This is what the preacher says in verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. So far throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, there's been no reward for all their toil. It's just vanity. Here's actually some reward. Knowing others, being known by others, being with others. In that sense, the application for this passage, as one commentator says, is elastic. This could totally be a wedding passage. Perhaps the third chord is children, as I've heard it applied. But just as easily, this could be a passage for all of us in our friendships, in our gospel communities, in our membership of this church. Like, which other hair strands in your life are you getting more and more mixed up with that is causing greater and greater strength in yours and their lives together? We ought to stretch this passage into new and deeper areas everywhere in our lives. Outside of the self-focused, inwardly focused selfishness that we saw first. Like, keep growing Keep deepening these relationships past the superficial conversations about like how your fantasy team is shaping up for this year or what your professors are like or work or the weather or your frustrating kids. And praise God for so much of what I've been a part of with so many of you and I've heard reports of from so many others that together with each other and by the power of the Holy Spirit in our community here, in our small little church, sin is dying. Historic patterns of self-centeredness, patterns of anger and fear or discontentment and sexual sin. We're in this community project of pursuing more and more and more joy for ourselves as we shine more and more light into the nooks and crannies of our lives together. A life that points inwardly, a life of selfishness and isolation is just stupid.
Like, who are we to think that we are the most important person on this planet that requires so much introspection, self-reflection, and even self-loathing? One of seven billion. Who are we to think that we are the center of the universe when no one a hundred years from now will even remember your name, a sandcastle that is here and gone and forgotten, a life that's not all that different than a possum's, but a life where others can become more important than myself rather than using others to fill the empty cup of my life because I am full in Christ and I find joy and contentment in him, now I can be poured out into others. Instead of using you all, in a sense, you all can use me. Now I can be used to pour out into others, and now there's meaning there. There is reward in that kind of toil. Jesus not only fills us in his life and his death and his resurrection in the forgiveness of my sins and faith and swimming in the deep love of the Father through him, calling me out of my selfishness, but even in living a life as a model for us as well in how I think about, how I react to selfishness, how I react and understand death and injustice, Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This will be a text we consider this Friday night in the fellowship hall over here as we get together and watch the movie Silence, talk about a very timely conversation. Hope to see you there at 6.30 this Friday. But Jesus comes to call us out of our selfishness, out of our injustice, and even face death because we're outwardly focused, because we're pouring into others. All right, I think I'm actually going to cut this thing a little short tonight. This last paragraph here, considering the vanity of legacy of trying to create a sandcastle that you can then pass on to your children, that's really stupid. But it's also a Christmas light theme that's just going to pop up a couple more times throughout this book, so we'll get to that. Uh, For now, though, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, he's like a hardened old grandpa. He's sitting on the front porch in his rocking chair with a glass of lemonade, and he's seen it all. He's, He's seen the good things. He's tried to make them last, and when they didn't, he understood them for what they were. And now he's just really enjoying this glass of lemonade. Because he understands what the good things are. They're gifts from God. But he's also seen a lot of bad things. In his days, he's seen tragedy, he's seen sickness, and injustice, and death. But because this entire world is vapor, he understands the bad just as well as he understands the good. That God will not always remain silent which ought to come as enormous comfort to us. We're about to sing, we will feast in the house of Zion. We will feast and weep no more. That is good news. God is coming to make all things new through the second coming of Christ. But the future judgment that the old grandpa on the porch tells us of and asks us to reflect on ought to come to us as a warning as well.
Like, is your life merely about the here and the now? Is it fixed beyond the vapor? Is it inwardly focused, which is just stupid? So will you listen to the wisdom of this old man from the rocking chair, considering all of the things that he has seen and he's reflected on? We have the benefit that he doesn't on being on this side of the cross, being on this side of the empty tomb. For the questions that he might have about eternity, we have answers. That Jesus Christ has lived, he has died, he has been raised to new life, that he might share all of that with us as people. Let's thank him for that. Lord Jesus, we're thankful that you are alive, that you sit now at the helm of the cosmos in goodness and wisdom that, Father, you have subjected all things under his feet as king. All things, including the death, including the wickedness and the evil and our own personal rebellion against you, all of this is under the Lord Jesus' feet. So, Father, increase our faith increase our trust in you. Help us to lament and lament well. Help us to cry and cry well with one another. But help these tears and these questions produce greater faith, produce greater understanding of your wisdom, your goodness, and your love. And even so, Lord Jesus, we pray, come quickly. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.